Welcome to another episode of the Perfect Movie Soundtrack, where the movie needs the soundtrack as much as the soundtrack needs the movie. I'm Joshua Weber. I'm Heather Samples. And I'm Matt Lombardi. Join us this week as we pause to give thanks to John Hughes for the greatest holiday movie ever made. Excluding Christmas and Hanukkah and Halloween and New Year's Eve movies, a few Valentine's Day movies, and probably at least one Labor Day movie. I have uh, diners, pizza, and a uh, gasoline car. Have mercy. I've been wearing the same underwear since Tuesday. I can vouch for that. So Thanksgiving is this is this week, guys. Yep. So I thought it was pretty appropriate to do planes, trains, and automobiles. I would say it's very appropriate. It's the, it's the Thanksgiving movie. I don't think there is there even is any other Thanksgiving movies. Prove me wrong. No, there's no no contest. Basically, this comes out November twenty fifth, nineteen eighty seven. They knew what they were doing. Produced, written, and directed by John Hughes, starring Steve Martin and John Candy, and it actually wasn't. One of Hugh's biggest hits, like his big teen hits, um, or something like Ferris Bueller, but critics loved it, and it's grown into a holiday classic, but it's weird to me how much the critics loved it, and we can talk about this later, because there's the same amount of emotional growth and sentimentality in the high school movies in this movie it just happens to be adults doing hundred percent but they all acted they all acted like hughes was like maturing and growing up and it's like no you just didn't want to give the kids credit for feeling the same things that steve martin and john candy i guess were yeah because i'm sure that the demographics of those critics were completely reflected back at them by john candy and steve martin they were like i love seeing myself on screen it really feels good give me more of that I, I guess I was always just an old critic in a young boy's body because I always I always thought this was better Hughes. <laughs> Joshua, I hate it when you disappoint me. But don't you see Cameron and Ferris having the same relationship almost in some ways? No. You know, the, those like intense friendships? No. All right. All right, fine. You have to say no because it would undermine your... Uh, <laughs> I don't feel like Ferris and Cameron <laughs> no. are like these two at all. Oh, God. They have... No, no, no. They have this intense... I'm actually um, with Matt on this. It's, issue be- it's very much between with Ferris and Cameron. The way the scenes are written, the way they hurt each other, the way they insult each other, the way they, like, apologize, the way they, like, hate each the other each but want to finish the, the day. Yeah. Yes. Okay. But we're also here to talk about the soundtrack. So the soundtrack is a mix of rock, country, and pop, and it's currently out of print. Yes. And it's hard to track down. Hard to listen to. Very hard to listen to. There's cobbled together playlists that are missing tons of stuff. You can track some tracks down on YouTube. And it's interesting because it feels like just your typical movie, but then when you think about Hughes, it has some Hughes... um, touches but let's get to the movie talk yeah i have a question you 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 said that it's not a hit do you do you by any chance have any numbers on that i'm curious because i i definitely was aware of the movie when it came out oh it did well it made like 50 million dollars do you by any chance have any global box office (laughs) i don't think it was a huge global movie i think it was more of a it was in a it was in like canada it it seems like a very american movie it had like an okay opening weekend and then it ended up making 50 million and i think it cost like 15 million to make so like he made a ton of money but compared to like um ferris bueller's day off or um breakfast club they were bigger hits so this didn't perform as hard but yeah people ever tons of people went to see it it's a classic yeah and it's kind of grown into a classic on television cable yeah Yeah. 
way he wrote this. John Hughes. He he writes scripts very quickly. Like he writes them in three days. Wow. Just to get them to see if he likes them. And then he yeah. rewrites the shit out of them. And then he okay. does like 30 drafts forever. Yeah. That makes sense. But this one, it was, didn't it start, didn't this one start out as like a 400 page script? So no, it's, they cut, they shot more footage at the time than he's ever shot for any movie. So then he also says after he does the script and gets it down, he he also uses it as a blueprint because he likes to let actors do their own thing and improv, which I think why this movie is really successful with John Candy and uh, Steve Martin, um, because they're like adding their own stuff in it. And apparently the first edit through just to get it was three hours and 40 minutes. I would love to see it. Hashtag relatable for us. <laughs> Ethan, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> we edit the podcast down from uh, that time sometimes. But then he thinks he thinks it's like you'll never see it because it's like deteriorating in a vault. But there is a two-hour movie that they tested on audiences, and then the um, you know the producers or he was a producer, but the um, you know Hollywood people the money people were like we need this to be 90 minutes it works as 90 minutes they weren't wrong yeah, yeah no yeah. I, I as much as i want to i'm looking forward to seeing outtakes and stuff there's a new edition coming out in a couple months um that i'm hoping we'll have some extras and stuff but but this is a tight a nice tight 90 minutes as i think you once said matt this is people it, don't make a nice tight 90 minutes anymore everything's two hours and 12 minutes and you're like it's it's just a rom-com get it to 90 let us have a good night. Right. They were right. I think it's good that it's short. It does work in 90 minutes. Why does it work? What's working about this? Why do you guys still love this dated 1987 um, John Hughes comedy? I think the reason why it works is that John Candy and Steve Martin are such incredibly talented comedians. They are truly honest to God, gifted ass motherfuckers. And you put them together in a scene and they know exactly how to work mm -hmm. with their scene partner. And you can see over and over and over again in the movie, one of them just giving mm -hmm. in to the other's uh, yes and kind yeah. of training. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and the way that that ends up playing out invariably is uh, like really um, tight. Yeah. It, each little scene between them has an arc unto itself and and you're just like okay yeah that was fun i'll wait for the next yeah. one like i'm ready for the the next one the next one it's an almost episodic movie in the sense that you move from like one little vignette between them to the next uh and it's really hard not to be up for the next little sure. episode yeah that's going to be delivered to you by these like remarkably gifted people they let each other cook like when someone's going they kind of know, yeah. and it, yeah. I think, you know, Steve Martin was in theater and obviously comedy and stand-up and, um, you know, John Candy with Second City TV. So I think it's also, they have the comedy chops where they know the yes and, but then they know just to let someone go and, and, and just like be there for them. But it's like they, they take turns doing that in the movie. Really good at trading top, bottom, dub, sub-dom places. <laughs> That's one way I'm, to put it. They're yep. very verse. Yep. <laughs> I want to give uh, John Hughes some credit here as well. Obviously, they are both very talented actors and comedians. We know that. Um, but they are both also movie stars. Yeah. John Hughes got Steve Martin and John Candy better than anyone, I think. When you are that type of actor, movie star type of person, you're always Steve Martin in every movie. You're always John Candy in every movie. These people don't disappear into their roles. And I think he saw how utterly sweet John Candy was 
like that he saw that and he also saw how smarmy Steve Martin is, you know? And I mean, he got that so clearly. So I, I really think that like this kind of really seems like who they are even in other movies, even when they're not playing the exact same character as this, they kind of seem like these people. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think it's also interesting, like they take turns being the straight man because, and I think with two movie stars, that's hard to find that balance. And I think um, what you're saying is interesting because when you think whose movie is it, yeah, you know, it's technically Steve Martin's movie because it opens with him and it ends on, you know, him finally being home and hugging his wife. But John Carey's character isn't just the side dude who's the wacky guy getting him, you know, through the trip. He has a whole arc and you feel for him and he takes up such a presence in the movie. And it's like, it's like the eighties comedy of old joy. Yes. Uh, Which I know you guys are. You 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 knew that was like feeding the beast. (laughs) That's funny. I will add to that, that John Candy's problem in the movie is a much more meaningful problem. Yeah. Like Steve, Steve Martin acts like being a couple of days late to get home for Thanksgiving is like having gone to war. Yeah. Well, because look at his and life, because everything works like out for him. Staring yeah. off into the middle distance, yeah. like she's on like a widow's walk, gazing out upon the Atlantic Sea yeah. Yeah. on Cape Cod. Like these people are acting like it's like tie a yellow ribbon round every oak tree in outer Chicago over uh, nothing. But yeah. John Candy is facing. Uh, like a deep and long grieving process. That's a real problem. John Candy has a real problem. Yeah, he's the heart of it. Steve Martin does not actually have a real problem. But that's why Steve Martin's so great, because he's the guy that everything works out for. He's got the perfect family, the perfect kid, and then he can't get on a plane, and he just is an hysterical baby the whole time. He's uptight. He's frigid. He will not allow himself to enjoy things, moments, feelings. He's lost control of the situation. He cannot at all enjoy the presence of somebody else, and you know, other than, I guess, his wife. Yeah. Other than in an, in an instrumental way. Right. Well, it yes. takes him the whole movie. Yeah. Eventually, he says, why do I feel like I'm at summer camp? And he finally lets go and just like laughs, you know? That's the really fun scene when he, he goes and he gets him in from outside the car. He gets John Candy, who's sleeping in the car, and he brings them in. And he's sort of decided, you know what? Let's be friends. Let's do it. Yeah. And they are he's laughing like, and now. they're drinking that. The, this is There's a lot of really great John Hughes writing in this. And um, that that weird, um, they've bought like liquors from around the world. And he's like, oh, you want to go to Hawaii next? Where do you want to <laughs> yeah. go? You want to go to Mexico this, like, with tequila? And I've never heard of this variety pack. I don't know if such a thing exists, but it's boy, the, it's, it's great for a movie. It's the fucking Epcot yeah. of <laughs> yeah. minibar. They need to bring that back if that it's was It's a great plan. idea. And it's just a great way for them to laugh and to talk about stuff and to crack each other up. Um, like when John Candy then goes into the bathroom and he's cracking up laughing and he opens the door to continue laughing yeah. and then goes back in. <laughs> you can see why he's John Hughes. I mean, there's so many great, great lines, really well-directed scenes. Clearly the chemistry between the two of them is, is incredible, but uh, just the writing is fantastic. The pacing is fantastic. The editing or the, the directing is great. I mean, it's, it's, 
it, it even though there's cheesy stuff here and there, it doesn't keep the movie from being absolutely wonderful. Well, I was also thinking like the gift of watching something from the late 80s is you're already in and accepting of the cheesy stuff. So like, you know, at the end when Steve Martin's on the train, he realizes that John Candy's wife probably passed away like eight or nine years ago and he hasn't been home for years and he might even be homeless. And he's like, and they do it in a series of flashbacks and then expressions of Steve Martin realizing. Yeah. If someone, you know, that's just like a bad cheesy movie. Yeah. But because it's the 80s, it's kind of just relief where you're like, fuck it, I'm just going to enjoy this. It's very effective. Let the 80s roll. It's cheesy. It's John Hughes. And then you can just kind of like have fun and like enjoy it for what it is. Oh, yeah. I don't think you have to withhold any of the joy that these no. guys are giving you. In this I, I, I truly laugh out loud. Yeah. I actually the delivery. do choke. I, ch- I, ch- I, ch- I choke up several times. I mean, I find it a very, very yeah, funny really movie sweet. and a very sentimental and sweet movie. It's as really well. touching. All right, so should we talk about, because I have a little theory here, should we talk about the music in this movie? It is part of what we promise with the title of our podcast. (laughs) Oh, Heather. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's only part. It's only part. It's only one word. (laughs) I'm just trying to get to the next section. I don't literally mean, should we actually talk about it? I'm trying to transition, (laughs) goddammit. <laughs> Should we just sit here silently? Um, okay. I, all right. I have a question. Do you guys want to talk about the soundtrack? <laughs> I think it's a great idea. Let's so, see what happens. It it might be difficult to talk about, but I, I'm willing to try. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's give it a try anyway, guys. Um. Oh, oh my god. Hey, let's go for it. <laughs> I'm game. Here's the idea I came up with, and I I, I want you guys to help me. See if this even makes sense. Talk about the music. Yes. Can we just end right. this? Can we just Are end we this do now? That now? I'm in so much pain. This is so painful. <laughs> All right. Top 10 John Hughes soundtrack moments. Let's do it. Um, thinking about this movie, I did not pick it at all for soundtrack reasons at first. I picked it purely for greedy Thanksgiving reasons. But then I had this thought. I don't know. One song on it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, when you brought it up to me, I immediately thought there's the John Hughes synthy stuff. I remembered that. And that's about all I remembered. And I, yeah, I didn't e- Which either. Which is such a strange, when you, when you hear the n- words John Hughes, immediately you think of soundtracks, yes. immediately you think of music as part of whatever you're picturing. And yet this is, this is just as much a, like part of the Hughes oof as anything yeah. else. Yeah, no, great point. And yeah. it's a total departure from his regular behavior around around music. Yeah. I'm actually, one of the things I was thinking about while watching this movie again this week was, wow, I wonder how he got to a place where he was even able to be this restrained about the soundtrack. Yeah. And I think he put thought into it. Oh, I'm not saying I don't think he put thought into it. I'm saying I think he's a lot less pedantic and and pedagogical than he is in his other movies about uh, uh, other soundtracks. Yeah. Maybe he was feeling typecast a bit. I came up with this theory of the invisible soundtrack. And here's my definition of the invisible soundtrack. Basically, when it's a movie you know and love and you've seen multiple times and you can't name more than one song 
from the soundtrack. This absolutely fit that. Right. So this fits it. But then I had a really hard time thinking what other invisible soundtracks are out there. It's like trying to prove a negative is the, 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 the issue is because you won't you won't remember what it is until you're confronted with having to deal with it. The fact is, if you if you see the movie a bunch and you don't really remember the music, it's not until somebody says like, hey, dude, there was music in that movie <laughs> that you go back and look at it and go like, oh, yeah, you're right. There was. So this is a movie where the music is is not score. It's it's a true various artists soundtrack. But that soundtrack is being treated as such set dressing, as such, uh, like, it's got an atmospheric function or it's got a literal function where the thing that's happening to a character is reflected in the lyrics of the song that's playing in that moment. And none of them are standout songs. And the compilation of them is not a standout album. It's just kind of there to layer in some atmospherics. And consequently, is like totes unmemorable. Kind of like the the road movie vibe of Thelma and Louise when they were playing mm-hmm. some perfectly radio, like perfect songs that would be playing yeah. on the radio in that movie. But you know, it doesn't have a um, you know what's the old time of rock and roll Tom Cruise sliding in his socks. Like it doesn't have a music moment where they're singing or dancing to a song which you can see that happening in this movie, but then it also doesn't have mm-hmm. a really like intense background music song, maybe at the very end of the movie, which we'll talk about later. There's, there's a couple songs that are, that are very atmospheric and use you said atmospheric a minute ago, but I mean, that are used pretty prominently and loudly like cranked that are not necessarily songs that they would have been listening to. I mean, John Candy is uh, pantomiming a Ray Charles piano. No, there's movement, that for sure. Which causes yeah. him to wreck the car and burn it up in the first place. Yeah, no, there's, there's that for sure. But I, there's also, look, can I, can I talk about the first song on the actual yeah. soundtrack, which is, called I Can Take Anything, featuring Steve Martin and John Candy, and it is by the artist ETA. This is a kind of um, surreal song, and it plays a lot in the movie. I can take anything. Oh, yeah. It's kind of got that, that movie music sound yep. from the 80s when, you know... And then it's got the scratch going on. Yeah, but it's the other Ferris Bueller song. Like if you don't have the oh yeah, 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 yeah. the cousin yeah, yeah, yeah. of that. But what's crazy is the reason it says in the in the credits um, featuring Steve Martin and John Candy is that the song has in it lines from the movie in the background. But what's yeah. crazy is this song plays with the lines from the movie <gasps> as background. I didn't notice in the that. Movie. There are times in the movie <laughs> no, I... where you hear like John Candy or Steve Martin in That's this song so say something that their character is not saying at that moment. Or hasn't said yet in the movie. Or hasn't said yet. It's, wow, it's like Borges. Like being John Malkovich <laughs> or like multiplicity bullshit right there. It's That's really strange. <laughs> it's very strange. But, but it's very much movie. It's, it's a real song, and it's on the soundtrack pretty prominently. I mean, that whole chase scene between him and Kevin Bacon is that song. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's in it a few times. And I'm just saying that... that I totally forgot Kevin Bacon that, was There it. are songs that are featured fairly prominently. Do, should we go through the list? John Hughes put enough thought into this where he broke it down to side A and side B. Side A is town, 
which um, represents the character of Neil and Steve Martin, I guess. Yeah. And side B is country, which is probably supposed to lean more toward the kind of Midwestern hometown vibes of John Candy. So side A has that track that Joshua just played. I can take anything by ETA. It has banana bamboo by Westworld. <laughs> and I'm saying it like that because there's dashes between every syllable. Yeah. How am I supposed to banana bamboo? Um, I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll show you something special by Balam and the angel. words off of a list without like a kind of these weird inflections tells us a lot about how obscure and filler this shit is i mean i don't even just like radio junk it's like stuff that didn't make it on the radio junk Yeah, yeah 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 It's like an approximation of radio. Are you guys telling me that you're not fans of Mo Digliani, (laughs) Lost in Your Eyes by Book of Love? one yeah. this is the like yep. oh she's getting ready to go out tonight yeah like yeah. this is this, this, this is, is very little, john hughes little, wheelhouse molly ringwald yeah. written all over it now we've got we're getting to the two songs that are in the john hughes wheelhouse the next two songs on here are Modigliani uh, by Book of Love and Power to Believe by the Dream Academy. And these are hardcore John Hughes-esque synth jams. Dream, Dream Academy's yeah. wheelhouse. Gathering strength from the This is so John uh, Hughes wheelhouse. Yeah. And, yeah. and this sounds, and it's used well in the movie too. Although I don't think it's a song that either Steve Martin or John Candy would have any clue exist in the world. Yeah, it, um, it's, it's still, not side it's A. It's Collins, but make yeah. it nice. It's side, it's side <laughs> B that would be on the radio. Well, not all of it, but most of it. Yeah, so I, so I think there are a couple songs here where you can really tell that we are in the- um, John Hughes universe. In the John Hughes-iverse. Yeah. Hughes-iverse. Definitely reminded that this is a John Hughes movie. He's gonna throw synths yep. on things. And, and he does it during some of the most emotional and impactful moments. Like for him, emotionality is 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 a synth like like if it's going to be <laughs> sentimental if it's going to feel good you're going to get some good synth in there um which hey i, d- I don't disagree i'm i'm okay with that that's a great call. i mean he's not wrong sometimes he does it better than others yeah, like yeah there's a difference between new order and book of love all right so the second half of this goes away from the hey yeah yeah and all the synths <laughs> and it's called country and you can get a feel for what kind of um, side B this is when the first song on it is Six Days on the Road by Steve Earl and the Dukes. And then you have um, Gonna Move by Dave Edmonds, Baby, Back in Baby's Arms, but covered by Emmylou Harris. 
goes back to the synth pop, and we'll talk about this later, but it's covering an old cowboy song by uh, Silicon Teens, and then Wheels by the Stars of Heaven. So it's not full on super country. It's as country yeah. as John Hughes knows. As John Hughes gets. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. a good point. That's a great point. Full out of Pittsburgh, down the eastern seaboard. I got my diesel wound up, she's running like never before. Well, speed's on her head, all right. I ain't seen a cop online. Since dead on the road, and I'm gonna make it home tonight. All right, so since we're doing country, let's just get Heather. What's your pick? Because I know you got a side B pick for us. Of course, Heather was picking off side B. I love it. <laughs> I obviously had to pick from the countryside, and I obviously had to pick Steve Earle. If I had um, had to guess, I might have guessed that you would go with Emmylou Harris. But yeah, I can see that too. Well, Emmylou Harris is uh, is like the song a songbird of my youth, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the number of Emmylou Harris songs that surrounded me until I came of age and left my place of origin was off the charts. Yeah. Um, but Steve Earle is somebody who I had to come to a little bit later. Mm, yeah, well, that makes sense. And, and I think because I came to him a little bit later, uh, I came to him with an understanding that I couldn't, I couldn't have ever brought to Emmy Lou. Emmy Lou was more like a was like lullaby music. It was yeah, the okay. song. I get it was that. like literally the song that you would play to put put everybody to bed, right? Um, here's what I want to tell you guys and our listeners about Steve Earle and the Dukes. I believe it's possible that despite the fact that the man is definitively a congressional medal of honor level national treasure, uh, he'll probably get that, that someday. Yeah. That there are people who actually don't know who he is. Guarantee it. Um, or don't understand his impact. Uh, so if you were to try and find out a little something about Steve Earle and you were to Google him and you were to go to his Wikipedia page, you would find that it is almost impossible to get through a single sentence without something being hyperlinked to another Wikipedia article. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I haven't even committed to a Wikipedia page, but I can totally mm-hmm. get what you're saying. Yeah. About a blue hyperlink. It's just blue as far as the eye can see. <laughs> Let me give you a sampling. This is a small percentage of the hyperlinks on Steve Earle's Wikipedia page. Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, Bob Seger, Emmy Lou Harris, HBO, The <laughs> Wire, Treme, Towns Van Zandt, The Pogues, The Grammy Award for XYZ, The Iraq War, Fahrenheit 9-11, Randy Newman, Air America, Tom Waits, Rage Against the Machine, Tom Morello, Dead Man Walking, T-Burn Burnett, The Occupy Movement, The Southern Poverty Law Center, Roe v. Wade, The New Yorker Festival. And can, can I add to that that... Those are not inconsequential connections. <laughs> I am choosing like one out of every 50 links in the man's entry and only the ones that relate to things where he has had a, a deep influence yes. or a deep connection. 
deep connection to each yeah, one of those his, things you named. His yeah. relevance is just decades it's of crazy. relevance. Yeah. It's just unfucking believable. He's a musician. He's an activist. He's a writer. He's an actor. He is a true, honest to God outlaw artist and has been since the day at age 14. He ran away from home in search of Towns Van Zandt. And he found he was him. like, I, I want to go. I need to go meet this man. Mm -hmm. I need to go find him. So that's what I'm doing. I'm fucking putting on my backpack. I'm putting a sandwich in my bag. And I'm going to leave my home at age 14 because I'm on a quest to go find Towns Van Sant. And they end up having a significant Mm -hmm. uh, artistic mentor-mentee relationship for, for the rest of Towns' life. So, like, anyone who's been able to spend this much of his life on Earth doing this much good, uh, honest, authentic exploring of, like, what it means to be human in relation to others is somebody that we should take seriously enough that no matter what he puts out, we listen to it, right? I think there are plenty of people who don't know who he is. He's never really had big hits, um, you know, in that sense. Uh, uh, So, crossover hits, I mean. Uh, you you may know him from The Wire. He's um, Bub's uh, Bubbles uh, sponsor. Um, Waylon is yeah. Go appropriately. Waylon is his character's name Waylin. in the in the. I feel like he wire. got to pick and, his own uh, name. I I love him so much in The Wire. I find he's like really really great directors can take people who aren't necessarily actors and put them in their world and use them and use what is authentic about them really well. And I feel like I believe his sobriety and his and his hope for his friend so much in The Wire. I find his character so moving. Yeah, I'm and and I think that that's an, a really quintessential part of of Steve Earle as a human and an artist is yes, that yes. he's he's unwilling to do anything that doesn't feel authentic to him. Um, yeah. And obviously, you know, he comes to that, that role in The Wire with a tremendous amount of lived experience about yes. substance use disorders and what it's like to live with them and what it's like to be around people who are living with them. And I, I mean, he's just... I mean it when I say he's a national treasure. If you are one of those people who hasn't really spent time with Steve Earle, I would encourage you can you can start easy. Just go to the fucking Apple Music Steve Earle Essentials page or whatever, and that's good enough to like begin to enjoy what an astonishing artist he is. He's somebody I don't right. hate like at all. <laughs> like I've never once hated him. <laughs> I'm sure we can find this uh, song somewhere. So this song, Six Days on the Road, is a cover. It's been around since the 50s. It's like one of the original country songs that kind of kicks off the a, a, a pretty lasting moment of trucker music. And... It's a it's a song about what it's like to be an overworked trucker. So it's fitting for this soundtrack uh, to this movie, right? Six Days on the Road. Yeah. And and the speaker of this song is like finally going to get home to his his girl. And he's he's taken his little white pills to stay up and the diesel's burning and he knows how to avoid the weigh ins and the cops and. 
it's it's a very uh, it represents a really like authentic relationship to long haul trucking, which is a not an easy thing to do. I think he, I don't think he sentimentalizes the job. The song doesn't. I shouldn't say he. It's like I said, it's not a Steve Earle song. Um, I I've, I'm also I will say like moved by that. When I was growing up, uh, my my dad's car was always a, a company truck. And it always had a CB radio in it because it, uh, that was the only way that you could communicate on the mine sites. Because Smokey and the Bandit mm-hmm. style. <laughs> well, there was there's like there are no telephones. There's no there's no cells. There's no mm-hmm. nothing. It's like CBs are how you communicate. And and so I would I spent a lot of time on the CB. Any time that I was he would like let yeah, me. Sure. I would <laughs> you would like get on and you would talk mm-hmm. to people and. Uh, I think that's probably where I, I like first got my appreciation for the job of long haul trucking and found a podcasting. That's and, what I thought she was going to say. Like, <laughs> first time I got into podcasting. Um, but I, but I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting job. I think it's a, I think it's a really hard job. I think that the, it's only grown harder. I think it's it's the kind of thing that a politician will just like throw bullshit at and toward and about. It's one of those like Americana. Oh, this is an easy thing. Mom, apple pie and truck drivers. Yeah. Um, But it's actually much more complicated than that. And this, this song I think gets at that and does that justice. And not only do we have a great song about a complicated, uh, really important, but also deeply flawed and problematic uh, profession and the world that is created around it. But then we get Steve fucking Earl singing about it. And I could listen to this song over and over and over as a result. As I assume, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Tom Morello, Emmylou Harris, and Randy <laughs> Newman also all would do alongside me. So you think John Candy's the bigger fan of this song? <laughs> well, I don't know. Far, actually, Steve Martin Mr. Banjo. Yeah, I was actually about to say Steve Martin, I think, is... Oh, if you take them yeah, out of the I movie... Steve Martin's okay. probably I was pretty to, good at this, at caring yeah. about this kind of music. Yeah, outside of the movie, but yeah, not no, Neil. No, in not the movie, Neil. Neil no, has a no. Piaget watch, for fuck's sake. <laughs> I, I mean, I just assume it was a That's fancy great. watch, probably worth a lot more than that hotel room that no, he paid the, for with the, it. No, the shot of... Yeah, they're like more than yeah. Rolexes. The shot of his watch before yeah. in the early part of the movie, uh, yeah. it becomes like a it's like a Chekhovian gun. You can tell that when uh, John okay. Hughes captures the shot of that and the light like uh, glints on the yeah. Piaget logo on the face of the watch, that like something terrible is gonna happen to this watch <laughs> by the time. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of these characters, where do you see yourself? Are you Adele, the John Candy, or are you Anil, the Steve Martin character? I think the characters both are so dynamic that throughout the movie, you are at times understanding why Steve Martin is so repelled and at times understanding why John Candy is so annoyed with Steve Martin. And so throughout the movie, I kept kind of seeing myself in different versions in different times. Like, oh yeah, I can definitely see that. I can definitely see that. So it's kind of a tough question, even though I think they do have some basic core characteristics that you might pick. What is this, a debate? Stanley, <laughs> you're dodging the question, sir. I'm hoping, I'm hope, I'm, I'm hoping that- <laughs> What Heather will say her, her pick. I think what Josh was saying is that John Hughes is so Ooh. gifted. In this that, case, yes. 
<laughs> that uh, that that he's able to impress his point of view upon Joshua, and Joshua's uh, empathies and sympathies are uh, mutable depending on who John Hughes wants them to align with. I look. We just spent how long saying how uh, remarkably good-hearted Dell is, yeah. and how uh, unbelievably tender um, he is as a character. So. I'm not proud of it, but I am definitively a Neil. <laughs> I am 1000% a Neil. Yeah. What it's, aspects of Neil do you yeah, see? Yeah, what scene kind of, are you like, make, that's yeah, me. Like, makes you, like, especially if it kind of makes you cringe. If you kind of go, ooh, that's a, that's a little bit of a mirror right there. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely Neil talking to Principal Rooney's secretary at the oh God, uh, rental car scene. What counter, a scene. Which is the scene that earned this movie its because R he says rating. Fuck so many yeah, because, times, right? uh, yeah, it's like 10 times. Because Steve Martin says fucking like 100 times. Yeah. Um, I guess we should get, give it a context really quick. That's the scene after he's been dropped off at a rental car that isn't there and he has to walk all the way back through the snow and he gets to the rental agent and it's and it's a woman who's on the phone talking it to, to home about Thanksgiving coming up and just does not. She's going to bring the crescent rolls. She's going to bring the crescent rolls. And <laughs> she's he great. I is love that. No <laughs> freaking mood for that sort of person. And, and I say that not to suggest that I'm the kind of person who yells at uh, service industry workers because I'm really not. It's more that I can totally relate to that sensation of why does nothing yeah. work? Okay. Right. Why yeah. is everything that we have to face mm. and deal with and interact with all the fucking time so fucking yeah, broken can no one just do something all right calm down works. neil calm down neil i can <laughs> I, I can super relate to that and also uh the scene where steve martin has where he like first blows up at dell in the first hotel room their first night and he's he's just like letting loose his entire uh disgust yeah. with dell i'm a more controlled person than that yeah. most of the time oh, you you suffer from um, some hyperbole but i <laughs> but i'm but i'm often able in an in an instant like that when i in an instance like that where i really cannot fucking stand the person that i'm stuck with able to get through it without that person really mm -hmm. knowing how deeply okay. i detest them but i can so relate to that sensation of i hate everything about you <laughs> oh now i feel bad for john candy and now i you cannot do? believe <laughs> That All I am over again, I meant. stuck with you. That's what makes me a Neil. I recognize myself in uh, Neil's, like the like on the plane. Dell wants to chat, and his um, I I've got. I'm gonna, <laughs> yeah, that's a I'm very Joshua move. He's like, like, I do not want yeah, to talk to my. I am not <laughs> talking to you on a plane. I'm not talking. I'm not going to get dinner with you. So I definitely get that. I I would not say the things that he says to him for a, a number of reasons. So I'm I definitely don't recognize that in myself, but I definitely recognize the uh, the you know the pushing people away. Not wanting not wanting to uh chit chat participate make a new friend mm -hmm. all of that sort of thing i definitely recognize that a lot but then i also deeply recognize and and recognize in myself it you know and in, in in ways the how vulnerable and easily hurt john candy is so there's definitely times where i was like oh yeah i get that feeling <laughs> <laughs> that well of sadness or whatever i definitely i got that too so I, I find a little bit of both yeah i'm the same when steve martin's disgusted with the world when he has to like use a payphone and the payphone's disgusted and he's looking around at people and he's just like his like general disgust with the world. I, I get to that place, but 
at the same time, I can I get in conversations with strangers all the time. My wife I, is I my, believe that. My wife is like <laughs> she was like, Who are you talking to? I was like, I don't know, that's my new friend now. Like I, I will always just randomly when we first uh, started dating, she's like, Oh, including Michelle Williams. <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs> I didn't know it was Michelle Williams. And I was just talking to her, but I definitely have the John candy thing where I'm like, ah, we're both stuck here waiting for like our takeout order or whatever it is. And I can just strike up a conversation with people. And I'm also the person, like if you're trying to get off the phone, I have like one more thing to tell you. We're like, we know. Keep, keep going. I got to keep going a little more. So when um, John Candy does that to Steve Martin, um, I definitely relate to that. Yeah. But I also relate to Steve Martin's like, sometimes when I'm traveling, I'm just, I just, I'm like, thank God I don't live here and I hate everyone here, which is terrible. But, you know, it's true. I find myself when I'm talking about them, almost turning them into, uh, I'm almost accusing them of being uh, one-note characters in a way as well. I mean, it's worth remembering that as Dell's character is so likable because John Candy is so good playing Dell, Dell is legitimately gross. I mean, yeah. that scene yeah, I mean, in the I'm, bathroom I mean, is disgusting. And if you were stuck with that dude, you would be out of your yeah. mind. When his socks are in the sink and his gross. underwear is on Ima- the... Yeah. Yeah. Imagine if uh, Randy Quaid was playing a Dell character. <laughs> yes. It would be a it would, Yeah, would. great call. Great call. Uh, and, you can, and you can imagine them casting sure, someone yeah, yeah, like yeah. that, right? That's yeah, the bad no, it casting. Would be a movie, yeah. It would be a movie about stuck in hell with another person. That's what it would be. Yeah. <laughs> and then they would have to come around and said they like them and it wouldn't be believable. When they like no. each other in the end, it's so believable. But oh, you know, at the God, end of yes. every buddy comedy, they have to come together and half the time you're like, these people don't care. But you're like, they might actually care about it. Oh, I other. totally believe it. Yeah. Red River Rock is an interesting song that kind of works like a motif in the movie where when they hit the road and they're moving forward or they're going somewhere, it plays in the background and it's this kind of like happy, funny, reminds you you're watching a comedy um, synth pop song. But what's interesting about it is it's a cover of a very, very old song um, called Red River Valley. And Red River Valley, if you don't know what it is, you've heard it. It's like... It didn't quite make You Are My Sunshine status, but it's one of those classic old cowboy songs from the 1890s. It's been in countless movies itself, and it has lyrics, but here he just does a synth-pop instrumental. And um, I actually love this song because this is a cheesy dad moment. My daughter had to learn it for school. Some teacher was going away or someone who worked at the school and the kids had to sing a few songs to her and they had a little goodbye thing and she always sings it and it's the kind of simple song that if you hear a little kid sing it it's like this the sweetest thing okay and this is a cover that's called red river rock but the rock is just put there because it's an instrumental is that what yeah, you're so, saying so yeah let me let me back up here to make it clear to everybody so the okay. song red river rock is a cover of the song red river valley but because it's like this synthy pop rocking beat, they changed the song to Red River 
rock the silicon tents. Okay. It's Jingle Bell Rock. Okay. Sort right. of. Okay. Uh, Explain it to me like I'm one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cover of an old folk song, an old cowboy song. And that's the one um, it has um, lyrics. That's the one my daughter sings. Wh- like okay, Woody gotcha. Guthrie, Pete Seeger, everyone's sang this. It was written in the 1890s. I don't think they even know who actually wrote it because it became such an old classic cowboy standard. Do you think of the valley you're leaving? Oh, how lonely and dreary it will be. Do you think of the fond heart you're breaking? And the sadness you cast over me. Yeah, I, I got to say, I don't think this has really entered my consciousness that much. It's nice. It's, it's a really It could have been You Are My Sunshine. Nice. I feel like yeah. it just missed it. It does. It sounds very close to that. Yeah. It's really sweet. And he's like, come and sit by my side and tell me that you love me. And it's like yeah. a great um, going away song. So John Hughes. Yeah. Cool being John Hughes remembers that there was a cover of this from 1980 um, or maybe it was 79 by the Silicon teens. You know who the Silicon teens are? No. Honest to God. No, no clue. (laughs) Honest to God. (laughs) Thanks for being honest about that. So like I couldn't be any less familiar. They were a British new wave band, but they were a virtual band made by one guy who wrote all played all the instruments, wrote all the songs. They would cover, they would just do like new wave synth pop covers and had some originals. But the guy who was the founder was Daniel Miller. Daniel Miller, you might know is the founder of mute records. Um, English music producer and mute records had everyone early from like Depeche mode to new order. So he was just in that scene and he was a big producer and worked with all these British new wave bands anyway. So he just had this project by himself. He called it Silicon tweens and he even would hire actors to be interviewed as band people. And he had this whole fake band that he would just run and they only went from 1979 to 1981. And then he kind of disbanded the project. But of course, John Hughes being a music nerd and knowing about new wave and synth pop, he loved this cover of red river Valley, that old folk song we were just listening to. Um, as Red River Rock and thought this is perfect John Hughes road music for trains, planes, and automobiles. And he really mixes the town with the country. And it's kind of a great move. And the song is like fun. It keeps you going. It gives the movie momentum when they hit the road again and you hear it playing. And the song itself, the kind of the synth pop moves they use in the beat, it's just really fun. Yes, it is. And it reminds you like, in all the stress and heartache, you're still having a good time yeah. on the road with these dudes. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a funny choice. It is, and it's an it's a nod to a American heartland, yeah. but with the John Hughes synthiness to it. So it's kind of this perfect mix. I, I really like it. And its melody is totally recognizable in this weird synthy cover yeah. in a way that like if you know the song, you can feel yourself being like, Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Or you're a little confused and you're like, wait, what is this song? I know this song. (laughs) Yeah, it works in the movie. I mean, like so much of the the music works in the movie. It's the right music for the movie. It's just you leave the movie and you don't remember that there was music in it. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's definitely not. It definitely doesn't have the Breakfast Club feel no, of the, how music is present. It's the invisible soundtrack. Yeah, it's not didactic. It's not trying to get you to pay attention to the music. Yeah. Yeah. Keep on Do you guys want to take um, a quiz? Do you want to no. continue your battle against no. each other? I always want to take a and quiz. Take a quiz? Of course. Of course we do. <laughs> We're going to have one question about planes. Oh. One question <laughs> about trains. <laughs> and one question about automobiles. Sense. All yeah. right. I love it. And I'm writing this so, down so that I'll remember. Are you ready? Yes. Very ready. Are you warmed up? As warmed up as I'm ever going to be to beat joshua again <laughs> okay here this is the planes trains and automobiles quiz number one plane and as always multiple choice <laughs> so the planes question is how many minutes of oxygen are cabin oxygen masks wait 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 wait, 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 wait. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real plane question uh so you know the little mask that drops down? I love down? how Heather's, little Heather's oxygen making mask? a big... She's doing all this so she can buy time and start Googling. I, I no, see what's going I'll, on here. Here my yeah. hands. No, no, here my yeah. hands. They're not, see they're not fucking Googling uh-huh. anything. You can see I'm not typing yeah, anything. Yeah, she's, she's wearing her, like, those those Google glasses. <laughs> Wait a second. Matt, <laughs> she's blinking in a weird You're pattern. fucking serious? You want us to know, like, trivia about yes. Yes. plane nerds? Planes, trains. He told you the... Wait, he you get to the automobiles. It was about planes, trains, and automobiles. Did you think he was lying? So, how many minutes of oxygen are cabin oxygen masks equipped to provide an emergency? I already know the answer, but I'm glad you're going to give us multiple choice so that Heather will be able to guess. Is Joshua bluffing? Is he finally going to win? A, five minutes. B, 15 minutes. C, 30 minutes. D, 60 minutes. The clock starts now. B, 15 minutes. That is correct. It is B. Wow. All right. We got a tie. It is B. <laughs> 15 minutes of oxygen. That's all you have. That kind of made me nervous <laughs> when I was doing my research. Yeah, that, no, that, okay, that, is, that is a little stressful. You're right. Trains. Murder on the Orient Express is a famed Ag- Agatha Christie mystery novel that has been adapted into multiple films. But between what two cities did the actual Orient Express run? A- Munich to Cairo, B, London to Bucharest, C, Milan to Beirut, and D, Paris to Constantinople. D. It is D. And you both are correct again. <laughs> Everyone knew it because of Paris. Paris was the giveaway. Uh, well, we, we know that when it started, there weren't trains from London across Europe, so that one was out. Yeah, I was trying to, trying to mix it up a little there. Okay, so... Tiebreaker, here it comes. Number, here's the tiebreaker. Number three, how how are do you guys know? Are you guys car people? Do you know about cars? No, I'm not. Heather, anything? Any knowledge about cars? I never learned to drive cars. Right, well, good luck because this is a really specific car. <laughs> this is a, this is a Number three, automo- automobiles. What was my first car in high school? <laughs> <laughs> I already know the answer, but I'm glad there's going to be multiple choice. So Heather, get it. So this is not a car what? question. This is a this, this is an automobile is a House of Lombardi. This is question. an automobile question. I would, eat, I would eat at that restaurant, by the way, House of Lombardi. <laughs> <laughs> House Italiano. So was my first car 
A, a maroon 1982 Volvo 240DL. Absolutely B, not. A navy 1992 Volkswagen Jetta. C, possibly. A white 1989 Subaru GL wagon. No. Or D, a gray 1993 Ford Taurus LX sedan 4D. No, it's B. So, are those your final answers? I'm guessing the Volvo. And Heather's going with the Jetta. It is A, a 1982 Volvo 240DL. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Joshua finally won. Test taking skills. (laughs) (laughs) How many episodes has it taken him to find out? I think this is Wait, so you knew that about me? No, I I I told you stories about that. That was pretty much a guess. But I mean, a Volvo fit my imagination. It was a 1982 Volvo, and this guy sold these beat-up, shitty Volvos, and it was like less than $2,000, and you got a t-shirt, which is why I wanted this car that said Volvos from hell with a pirate flag on it, and he would just sell these like piece of shit for $1,000, $2,000, and it was my first used car, and it was great. It was like a tank, and then I had to- Yeah, Volvos were good, good, safe, used cars, so it was was definitely- It was like the heaviest car that was ever It was a good entry-level car for a lot of people. I loved it. A Jetta. A Jetta is a girl car. If you'd had a Jetta, man, I would have laughed. It was, man. Early 90s, I see a Jetta coming down the road. I'm rubbernecking hard. I'm like, ooh, who's this going to be? My sister's first two cars were Jettas. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. So that was that was the quiz. Good job, guys. <laughs> Thank you. Thank sorry. You. Sorry your rain had to I, end. It didn't end. Heather. It had to, I'm I guess, still... couldn't go forever. It... <laughs> yeah, he's. It'll take him another six months to catch up. Could could it's could okay. be gaining I'm like on Romeo you. Romeo and Juliet. I'm in for the long run. <laughs> the episode Romeo and Juliet, not because they both die and they're not in it for the long run. <laughs> yeah, well, no, okay. I guess I should clarify. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet has recently overtaken the Big Chill to become our most popular episode. It is well it's earned. Been a long time. Well earned. Gen X uh, classic. You know, uh, all hail the Queen. Yeah, so uh and it doesn't look like there's anybody who's going to top it anytime soon. It's 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 steamrolling over everyone. Uh it's a very apparently you guys love Romeo and Juliet. My girls and my queers, my two audience segments of our show <laughs> know that I love you and we're coming back strong, baby. <laughs> <laughs> When I was trying to find this soundtrack, I was, um, I had a vague memory that the, that the last song in the movie was memorable and it's such an invisible soundtrack that I didn't even quite remember what it was, even though I've seen the movie a lot, (laughs) but I definitely knew that it was a song that I kind of knew and I knew it was very synthy or something. And, um, going on looking for this soundtrack and I even went to the uh, record store just with the small chance that I might find it there because I wanted to listen to it more because it was hard to find all these songs. I put together like a little playlist, but it wasn't complete. And um, doing that, if you, by the way, if you have this soundtrack at home, it's worth some money. So, you know, you should probably uh, sell it. I saw it for $299 on eBay. Sell it. 
sell it. Leave uh, it to your children. Well, yeah, put put it in put it in, the, put, it, put it in your beanie baby safe. <laughs> um, and then so in searching for it, um, and trying to see if I could find a copy of it, I found I stumbled on uh, reviews of it and stuff on Amazon, and a lot of people were very pissed that did get this album that to find out that it does not have the song from the last scene of the movie. So if there is a song that did sort of make an impression on people, it might be this song. And I think there's some reason why it's every time you go away, which is a song that most people would know because the singer Paul Young had a hit with it in 1985 that went to number one in America and in England. Um, and he performed it at Live Aid. Um, so that's that's the version of it that most people know. Oddly, it's not the version in the movie. It was on the radio too, right? Because it's it's yeah. Super, I mean, you could hear that yeah. chorus instantly. Okay. Yeah, it was literally number one. But go away. yeah, away. I wanted to play it within the context of the last scene of the film. I know we often will play just the song itself, but in this one, I think it deserves this scene with it. And it's it, it's only a minute or so here at the very, very end of the movie. So let's just take a look at the end of the movie and feel free to comment As they along. approach the prototype of the Home Alone house. Yeah, this is, they've got the trunk now. Dude. They're walking up to the big, uh, you know, Winneka Chicago very house or whatever. The big neo-colonial brick house. John Hughes must have had a location scout who was like, I want them all. Find them all for me. There's Every a neighborhood, right? That's them. just filled with them. <laughs> yeah, I worked at a coffee shop in this neighborhood. Wait, another job from Joshua? I did. I worked at a coffee shop Matt, near, next to in all Chicago? the John When were you Someday, living in Chicago? Matt, you no. and I. Yeah. <laughs> I lived there for a, Joshua just a couple Joshua is like a Bob Dylan once. song Matt. with all the American cities and towns he's lived in. <laughs> it's true. So, Matt, one day you and coming I home, are going to make family, a the, the most for Joshua of all the jobs he claims to have But had. it should be a map. The most sickeningly idyllic family of all time. The wife, near tears. My father-in-law, Walt. My mother-in-law, Peg. Hi. My mother, Joy. Well, my dad, Mark. Nice to see you. Welcome to Hello, guys. Neil Jr. Jim, Marty. It's got some real Christmas vacation vibes in this moment. Like, to John Hughes, And Home Alone vibes. There's a real, like, coming... And Home Alone vibes, yeah. Like, everyone gathered in the foyer. Yeah. Sweaters. So sweaters. here's where I couldn't nice figure out what the wife was feeling here. I was so confused. And, uh, I'd like you to meet a friend of mine. Hello, Mr. Griffith. Hello, Mrs. Page. No, it's really hard to read her. She's I don't know she's if she's like just not my, doing a good job like, or if John Hughes doesn't know what to do with her. She's she does she's like, blank faced the whole movie. How she feels is Johnny came back from the ten years war. But I thought like just, like shouldn't they have had like a fight and then he realizes he was wrong and he wants to be better on his trip and she's like, I know, honey. I like shouldn't there have been some kind of No they they couldn't have done that because they don't even talk. Because she's supposed to recognize that he opened up to a friend, I thought, here. How would she know? I don't What's know. It makes no sense. No, it doesn't make sense because <laughs> there's no reason that she should realize that in the last 
like literally the last 24 hours <laughs> after absolutely hating this son of a bitch that Unless... he got stuck with who he's been calling home and complaining about he has now befriended this guy but she has no way of knowing that so when she comes home but unless she's like that's the guy you hated he always hates people he finally likes someone but she really like heather said she's just happy but, he's but home she from the does, war she would have no way of knowing that joshua yeah. we don't even know that she knows anything about his days like he's, he's he has called home he's called home but he's never he keeps missing her, her except yeah. for the very first time because they're at oh. the play that you know okay. guys this might not even okay. be his wife <laughs> <laughs> this might just be a weird scene <laughs> um and the, the 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 then then they freeze frame on john hughes here john, at the end john candy. at john candy i'm sorry on john candy here at the end and i, I similarly it, to me, it's very heartbreaking. I don't know what to feel about it because obviously he's happy. He's been war he's been welcomed in by his new friend into this warm house. But the sadness yeah. at the core yeah. of this moment, where he's looking at this man reunited with his wife, fucking Piaget like watch motherfucker has a wife, and I don't. yeah. And is yeah, it like there's something missing from this ending though? Because I was just trying to piece together the wife, and then John Candy is he like? seeing a man united with his wife like he wants to be and like it's cathartic for him but they don't illustrate that at all or is he like i'm never gonna have this ever in my life again and he wants to kill himself like it just it's, it's, it's odd, just, it's odd. Like, yeah he's he talks in the movie so many times about getting neil home he feels such responsibility yeah. for yeah, yeah. like ferrying neil home it gives him a sense yeah. of purpose so maybe part of what we're supposed to understand in this, and I'm being super generous here. This <laughs> it makes no sense. I like it. I, fucking I, I, bonkers. I, I want to like this movie, so I'm I'm with you all the way here. I love so it. So maybe going. there's <laughs> a <laughs> well. Maybe there's a. I'm not saying I believe we're this, in. Like me and Josh are in. Doesn't matter. Being like, okay, I got my assignment. Anything. Let me yeah. let me debate on that one. Yeah, uh, I'm sold. Uh, maybe he's thinking like my perp. Like my watch has ended. Like I've done. I've done what I needed to do. I've gotten Neil home. I've gotten Neil home not only in one piece, but in a in a better state than he was than when I found him. Okay, and he's on and, time. And, and he's like, gonna, yeah. And that and that gives me some sense of like fulfillment and emotional resolution to my wound. I don't know, man. <laughs> it's a bullshit fucking scene, you guys. It's it's a weird it's scene. Trash. I agree. It's Something legit missing, trash. Like, you almost it's, it's like you almost are just happy when he's like he goes and he finds him at the train station. Like cause this movie's I love that it's kind of a rom com because you know they're gonna be friends at the end, right? You know you're they're gonna fall in love. And he runs back to the train station. He runs inside. He's got a Billy Crystal exactly. his way to the fucking New Year's party and be like when you know you yeah. love somebody. And he's like you want your the rest of your life to start right now. And he's like what are you doing? And then he tells him the truth and they have that moment and that feels like a great ending but the way the plot is they're like well we got to show him to get home but you could have ended there and then them driving to his house and like bringing the trunk in and they could have just Don't got you out think that like when yeah, that john that john hughes thinking about toying with the idea of like okay so I'm, I'm cutting the movie ends with him standing in the foyer but what would it be like if john candy like what's the next hour look like what's the next <laughs> yeah. six hours look like he probably stays oh. a night or two what does that look like you know that led to uncle buck oh good point yeah <laughs> good point. it had to have because the reality of him in yeah, that house yes. is 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 
the making of Uncle Buck. I actually thought about this a lot <laughs> after watching the movie. It was like, what are the chances that Neil and Dell maintain? Yeah, I was wondering that too. From this moment, the the chances are zero. I don't right? know. Like, they might. They, I don't know. I don't oh, know. Maybe That's a way. phone call. You really, are, you really are Neil. You're right. You know what? Now I'm. Now you're hurting me. <laughs> It's <laughs> it's an unsustainable. So friendship. you think Neil it's, wasn't it's changed never, at all? Then no, I'm not saying they didn't change. I'm saying that uh, life gets in the way. No, they're going to check in with each other. They they're don't gonna, have, maybe they'll do they like a, a call on the phone. It, John Candy text. John Candy There's is no friends with the dude who he sells at a motel that he sells shower curtain rings to once in a while. I mean, people <laughs> I like love this him. question though. Del. I love this question. What is chapter? What does the next chapter hold for them? I love what is the next day? What is the next week? What is the next year? I think they maintain a form of friendship. It's not, you know, John, it's what? not best buds right, or Joshua, anything like what that. What happens the next morning? The next when, morning they eat breakfast. When, wait, I'm not done. Del needs when a place Neil, to live. When Neil's wife wakes up and goes into the guest bathroom and <laughs> sees what Dell does to that bathroom. What happens then? That's where they should have ended the movie. And then he's like, Dell? Because like big shot of the house and you hear someone scream Dell. There's Del, no and way ends. in hell that Dell has learned how to use a bathroom. No, but I'll tell you what happened the night before. At dinner, over wine, Dell charmed her and her and the in-laws because they are not as hard-hearted as Neil, and they could see that Dell is a sweet person, and that he made the kids laugh, and so they because he's fucking Uncle Buck yeah. coming right back to Uncle <laughs> so, Buck. So, so they yeah. don't hate. But this is the Uncle Buck theory. This is also they a don't, theory. <laughs> so they don't hate him. So that when he, there's many schools of when thought. <laughs> he does some some things that are you know a bit problematic, they already are predisposed to enjoy him because they've already enjoyed his presence. That's that's the difference. Because the kids will love it. The kids what will is, love the stinky socks in the in the sink or whatever. What does they'll she they'll do, get a kick out of it. What does she do when he's smoking in in that okay. colonial home of hers? Uh, what, this is back when people smoked in homes. Several of those in-laws also <laughs> smoke. That's a fact. And the, Actually, but Neil, Christmas Vacation makes very clear yeah. that plenty of people smoked but in the house. Will, Neil smokes cigars. But Heather, has, I guarantee Heather poses a good question. Will Dell be able to change and like get his shit together, not just be an insane slob? I also, yeah, I, I don't know like, that Dell would do that. To, I think he does that to a motel like, bathroom. Would he know how to do that? I don't know that he does. Yeah, that. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. In someone's home, maybe yeah. he like puts on his little bow tie again his and house. like combs his, his wife hair. Did not tolerate that. But here, so here's my question. Those are those are your guys' thoughts. What does Dell do about his life though, and is Neil responsible for helping him anyway? Because is he essentially homeless? No, Dell lives on the road. He has a job. He just doesn't have access to money at the moment. Now he's home. I think what, I think what Matt is talking about is like the fact that Dell says I haven't been home in years. Right, because he like, lives on the does road. Does he even have a house? No. Or is he just always living on the road? I think he lives on the road in motels. He'll be fine. Crazy. He could sell. He could sell. He can sell anything. The guy's a salesman. We saw. He <laughs> it's okay, people, Joshua. We he know. We know. To buy, he convinced <laughs> teenage girls that shower curtain rings were cool earrings. Dude sold shower curtain rings. You guys to don't everybody. know Dell the way I know Dell. Oh my God, Joshua has such big feels for Dell. He's like, hold my beer. I'm gonna go protect. Well, he Del. doesn't want he doesn't want Dell to be hurt again because no. he's so you know Dell can is easily wounded. Yes. And Joshua's protecting him. I am. And Dell's 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 has access to money. Dell is not like homeless in the sense that he cannot afford uh, a place to sleep. So this song. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we're doing this song. <laughs> I forgot. 
Is this the perfect movie soundtrack? Yes. <laughs> All right. I haven't even I haven't really even thought about the question to now. Make the case. I love it. Make the okay, case. Here's the case. Del Griffin is in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> No, of course it's this, not. Come on, this is this. It, you, I mean, this is an invisible. Oh, I thought you were going to make a weird. No, I could no, Sometimes joking. the nah, invisible ones, the sleeper it's ones. Possible. I don't know. Hey, I'm an open-minded guy. I don't know. Okay. If, hey, if somebody listening to this wants to make the case that this is somehow the perfect movie soundtrack, I'm all ears because you know, heck, Heather is making cases for things happening in this movie that I, I'm all in. Like, if, hey, if you can, if you can defend something in this, do it. But then I don't see how you're going to defend this one. All right. So I'm going to change my answer to no, too, then. <laughs> no, <I'm kidding. laughs> no, this is an invisible soundtrack. It can't yeah. be the perfect movie soundtrack because you don't even know what it is until you force yourself to look into it. <laughs> so, yeah. dear listeners, we gift you this episode wherein we have contributed <laughs> to the scholarship and discourse of movie soundtracks and done all of the homework for you. And we can tell you... That Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is a fantastic fucking movie with a meaningless soundtrack. Except for boop, 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 we, we wish everyone an extraordinarily happy Thanksgiving. That is why we chose this movie. That is why Matt chose this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Joshua, you're up. What's the pick for the next episode? I was thinking about the fact that we uh, are closing in on the end of our first season, and I feel like we've done a really good job of digging into the big soundtrack era and thinking about things at the loose ends, the early parts of that and the ends of that and definitely the heart of that, and that we are missing some part of this uh, puzzle and that's like where we're at right now. We touched on it a little bit with baby driver, but I feel like that was a movie that was a little bit keyed into mm, it's like the modern to soundtrack like, uh, an older audience. And so I'm wondering like, what is the soundtrack now for people who are, you know, still being like influenced by soundtracks the way we were. And so I'm picking guardians of the galaxy. Oh, taking us to the Marvel cinematic universe. I did not see that coming. It is a place, Matt, where all of your brain cells will melt into a whole series of imperceptible micro expanses. Well, no I spoilers. <laughs> Please, no spoilers, because I stopped watching at the second to last Avengers movie. So from what I know, they're all dead. So just, <laughs> just, let's just all leave it at that, mm -hmm. right? Guardians, no more. Soundtrack's a big deal. Sold a lot of units. Volume one, in fact. Volume one. People bought it. People liked it. Yeah, yeah I feel like we need to deal with it. So that's my pick. And yeah, you guys got to deal with it now, too. All right. We're going to go hang out with Thanos. Uh, it's going to be a fun episode. Which, for the longest time, I confused with Theranos. Uh, it is very similar. <laughs> Heather, do you want to give us your take on the MCU universe before we go real so, quick? <laughs> uh, can I give you my take is that Thanos is the stupidest looking villain I've ever seen. It could, uh, it's crazy how much money they have. The guy looks like the dumbest CGI garbage. Does he look like a pile guy. of purple rocks in the comics? 
Are they beholden to the comic? He looks like no, fucking he, Grimace he's a... if Grimace were made out of boulders. No, it looks like Grimace if Grimace was made out of computer-generated data. But Grimace mixed with that old guy with the gravelly voice from Reservoir Dogs. The bald old guy that just looks like all skin. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Lawrence Turner, yeah. Do you guys remember those uh, those stone those stone characters from The NeverEnding Story? Yeah. yeah. He's like that, except make him Periwinkle. Periwinkle sounds really <laughs> evil and scary. <laughs> Hey, hey, hey! That's mine. Hey, take those headphones off right now! the guardians of the galaxy and a bunch of a-holes we certainly hope you enjoy your thanksgiving holiday and if you were to happen to drop us a nice rating or a strong review we would include you in our thanksgiving thoughts as well might lift a glass to you over our turkey and stuffing and gravy and mashed potatoes and i'm already getting hungry thinking about it you can find a link to our instagram and our twitter for as long as that lasts and then soon after that whatever we move to in the place of twitter in the show notes along to with our spotify playlist and links to YouTube videos when we post them up, which I think we might have one or two from this episode. We'll see. For Matt and Heather, this is Joshua, and we'll see you in two weeks with another episode of The Perfect Movie Soundtrack.